Hey, while you're taking a seat, man, tell the person on your right, all things are possible. Tell the person on your left, because the Cubs won the World Series. And because the Texas Longhorns won back-to-back games. Like, watch out. Like, God is coming back soon. Watch out. I won't say anything about the Aggies this morning. But I just did. I'm sorry. Hey, it's good to be back with you. My name's Derek. Uh, it's been a while since I've been in Cyprus. Uh, I've been preaching. I was up in Missouri preaching at a church and preaching in Spring Branch. And so it's always a pleasure of mine to be back in, in Cyprus. And so uh, thank you for having me. We're going to continue uh, our series in Mark. If you have your Bible, uh, if you have a Bible app, whatever it is, you know, go ahead and pull it out. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. We're going to pick off where Curtis left off. Uh, he finished up with a paralytic and how Jesus uh, forgave his sin and also healed the man. And we're going to pick up today continue on as we march through the book of Mark, and we're going to pick up in verse 15. So Jesus has just uh, gone, and he's collected uh, a, a disciple, Levi, who was a tax collector. And so, so now we're going to enter the story in verse 15, kind of set the tone, and then we're going to close today in, in, in answering the question that Jesus was asked about fasting and this new wine and this cloth. But before we get there, we want to have the setting. So verse 15, you can read along with me. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Just stop right there. Like, if that's not your view of Jesus, you've got the wrong Jesus. Jesus is sitting with a bunch of tax collectors who are those that, that abuse their power to tax the Jewish people more so so they could line their own pocket. It's the tax collectors and sinners like you and me that are the ones that are following Jesus. Aren't you glad he invites sinners to the table? Man, that was weak. Are you not glad that he invites sinners to the table? Because I don't know about you, but this is a church full of sinners, and, and even your pastors are sinners. I don't know if you knew that. But, but what we see, Jesus, it says that those sinners are the ones that followed him. And so this is the beautiful news for all of us in the room today. You're invited to the table. to Sit with Jesus to receive from Jesus. And in Jesus' fashion, this is how he rolls. And of course, it frustrated some people. And so in verse 16, it says, and the scribes of the Pharisees, so these religious leaders, protectors of the law, when they saw that he was sitting with and eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to the disciples, why does he, Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, anybody else in the room hate sickness in the house? Anybody just give me a, a amen, like a, yeah, hate sickness. Uh, it's been a rough spell at our house. Uh, today, uh, I'm not feeling the best. I'm, I'm kind of fighting off some, some junk. My, my little baby girl is at home with a stomach bug, and I know that's kind of going around, and so um, I'll stay distant from you. Don't get prayer from me afterwards. You don't want to get my germs and my anointing. But, but illness is just nasty, and just about eight weeks ago, my wife, you know, we're trugging along, doing well, and my wife gets sick, and four days later, after intense fever, she finally goes to the doctor, and she had pneumonia. Never heard of a young person that I've known have pneumonia, but let me tell you, it is brutal. It knocked her out, and when mama's down, how many of you know the house is down? Like, this daddy is playing, trying to figure it all out, like, mama needs to be healthy, I need her well. But pneumonia kicked her rear end for like four or five weeks. She still was struggling to get her wind back. She loves to work out. She wasn't able to work out for like four weeks, and so it just knocked her out. And, and so what do you know, you know, after she finally kind of gets to a plateau, she's feeling better, uh, my oldest son comes down with something. And he spikes a fever. 
His throat kind of hurtings. He stays home one day. But the next day, he bounces back, and he's great. And so we send him off to school. But, but the day that we send him back to school, how many of you know, guess what happened? Mama got sick again, and that's not a good thing. And so mama gets sick. She's like, well, he bounced back after a day. You know, we'll see what happens. The next day, fever even higher, throat hurting even more. And so she's like, man, I'm sick, and I got to go to the doctor. And so she takes herself to the urgent care and they do the test, and guess what? She had strep throat. Man, how many of you know strep throat is from the pit of hell? It's just <laughs> terrible stuff, especially for an adult. It's just terrible. And so she gets medication because she realized she's sick. She goes back, but then she's like, hey, you know what? I don't just get sick out of nowhere. One of my little kids probably gave me strep throat. And so she takes me uh, and takes the kid. I'm the fullback. I'm the one that ventures into all the germs of the urgent care to take my kids there. Uh, you know, you kind of do the whole meltdown, take a bath and in uh and uh, hand gel and try not to say, say um, get sick. And so I take my son, who was sick but was doing really well. We didn't think he had a need for a physician or a doctor, but, but my wife said, hey, you know what? You should go get him checked for strep, even though he shows no signs. And so I take my son into the germ-infested urgent care, and uh, they check him for strep. No symptoms, but guess what? He, he had strep. Now, here's the, the story is, see, my wife, she realized she was sick, and she proceeded to go get some help and to get treatment, and she was made whole again. But my son, he didn't see a need. He was feeling good at this point. He, he had no need to go to the doctor, so he didn't go to the doctor until my wife said, hey, I was sick. I am healed. Hey, maybe you are sick, and you need healing. And so when she did that, I took him. He was diagnosed with strep throat, and, and he got healed. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that we've got to recognize our need in order to receive. And so if you've got your listening guide, number one here is Jesus is the great physician. Amen? Jesus is the great physician. And he opens up the statement. He's responding to why he's checking out and hanging out with these sinners and tax collectors. And he says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the, not to call the righteous, but the sinner. And so Jesus says, I came for the sick. Those that are sinners, those who recognize their need and then receive. You see, so you can't receive from God unless you recognize that you have a need for God. This requires awareness. And maybe what I see often actually is that awareness of my need for God comes through another person. Their life, their testimony Maybe preaching, proclaiming the word of God like I'm doing today. Maybe that's what it is. But just like my son needed my wife to say, hey, I was sick, and, and I've been healed, and she told him, and then he realized, oh, wait, now I'm sick, and I need to get healed. That's the way I think that it often works out. We've got to become aware of our need in order to receive. And so we, we see this in the life of Jesus, that, that he is the great physician, which first, it, it, is, it is directly um, linked to physical healing, we see this in the first couple chapters of Mark where Jesus is physically healing those that are sick, those that are paralyzed, those that are demon-possessed. He is physically healing. But here's the thing. Without knowing that I was sick in the days of Jesus, I never would have gone to Jesus. If I didn't know I was paralyzed, which would be kind of hard to not know that, but if I didn't know, I never would have gone to Jesus. If I didn't know I had an issue in my body, I never would have gone. You see, I've got to recognize my need in order to receive. And Jesus, he is the great physician, specifically physical healing. And we see this in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. We're going to have it on the screen here. 
This is speaking of Jesus, and so it says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so Jesus demonstrated his, his title of the great physician by healing the sick, by having victory and power and authority over all things of evil. And so we see that Jesus, he's the great physician, and that is over all physical things. But the reason why he is the great physician, just like my, my alma mater, the Ohio State University, <laughs> the reason why he is the great physician is because not only can he heal physical disease, but he also has the ability and made a way for the ultimate disease called sin to be healed. And the, and the illness of sin, it's got a 100% death rate and it lasts for eternity. See, that is why he is the great physician. Not only of physical, but also over spiritual things. And we see this just a little bit later in Acts 10, 43, just a few verses later. And it's speaking of Jesus. To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, everybody say everyone, Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so this says not only does he do physical healings, he's the great physician, but he is the great physician because he can heal you of what no one else can heal you of. That's the sin in your life that's destined to death. Jesus alone is the great physician that can heal you both physically and spiritually. Now here's the problem with the religious leaders that we're seeing here. They never saw their need for healing or the forgiveness that Jesus offered. They assumed their good deeds of the law made them well. Now, you're sitting here today, and you're like, man, I'm not a Pharisee. Like, that's not my title and my job. Like, I'm, I'm good, right? Well, well, here's the thing. The Pharisees operated in, in this religious spirit, okay? This religious spirit. And so today, we just want to ask the question, is there any of us in this room that may be operating under this religious spirit? And so here's just one way that you can know if you're operating under a religious spirit, is if you assume the best when you look in the mirror, but you assume the worst when you look at someone else. I'm going to say that again. I want you to write that down because that's a question I think we all should ask ourselves. Is I may be, and, and probably are, operating under religious spirit if I assume the best when I look in the mirror, but I assume the worst when I look at someone else. I quickly pass over my own faults, but I recognize and lift up the faults of somebody else. That's what a religious spirit does, and this is what they were doing to Jesus. They were criticizing his followers. How dare they? Jesus, we are the ones that are right. We are the ones that are clean. We are the ones that are uplifting the law. Why aren't we the ones that you're around? And, and Jesus says, no, come to me. You're welcome to come to me. You Pharisee, you're welcome. You sinner, you're welcome. You tax collector, you're welcome, but what we don't want to do today is to unknowingly operate in this religious spirit. And the reason why I want to lift up that Jesus is the great physician because I don't want us to forget our need for daily grace and forgiveness. Because once we, we deviate and once we get far removed from our daily need of the grace of God, then what will quickly happen is we will take on this religious spirit where we oppose Jesus and we actually miss out on his presence in our life, just like the Pharisees and the other religious leaders did. When Jesus showed up, they completely missed him. They relied upon their self and they were quick to criticize. And so have you, when's the last time you considered Jesus as the great physician? Power to heal the sick, but also the power to heal from sin. And we're going to continue on in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. 
the people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So this is a great question, actually. Now, now just set the scene. The disciples of John the Baptist are with Jesus. Now, John the Baptist is, is likely in prison. Maybe he's already been beheaded. We don't know the exact timeline, but he is away from them. And so they're trying to figure out, man, my leader's gone. Like, what do I do now? And so they're trying to figure things out. So you got John the Baptist followers here. And then you got the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders of the day. And all of their followers are here. And then you got a bunch of eclectic group of sinners and tax collectors all mashed up in this pit around Jesus. And these guys that were really zealous for the law of God, which is not a bad thing, the guys that wanted to uphold the law, they're looking at Jesus and say, Jesus, like, I'm Jewish. And last time I checked, Jesus, you are Jewish. And, and the law of God applies to you too. Why is it that I fast four times a year during the feast, I fast during the Day of Atonement, and oh, by the way, I fast twice a week now, but when I look at you and your followers, none of them fast. Which I think if you were one of those people, if I was one of those people, I definitely would have asked that question too. Like, Jesus, like, like, I'm trying to follow God the Father, and I'm doing all the things that I've been told to do. Why aren't you doing it? I think it's actually a really good question. We kind of give them a bad rap for this question, but it's actually a pretty good question. They were following the law. Why does it appear Jesus is, is not? Now, Jesus doesn't just give a straightforward answer, which is really good. He, he usually asks questions or he tells a story, which I think is really smart and wise, and we could learn a lot from him. Jesus has this peculiar response. Look in verse 19. So they ask him, why aren't you fasting and why aren't your disciples fasting? This is Jesus' response. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus asks about fasting, and then he goes in and starts talking about marriage and a bridegroom and fasting, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to uh, officiate weddings. It's something I love to do. This next Saturday, I'm officiating one in Katie, and it's really joyous because it's, it's, it's a celebration of two lives coming together, submitted to Christ. It's beautiful. There's a ceremony. There's usually great food, which is great. Um, there's usually dancing, which is a lot of fun. Sometimes there's alcohol. Sometimes there's a little too much alcohol, which makes for an interesting night. Not always a good thing, but interesting. And so weddings are a lot of fun. And I love being part of that. But, but the weddings that we are used to pale in comparison to the weddings of Jesus' day. And so for us to understand the context here, I want to unpack a little bit. What is a Jewish wedding like? What was the, the process of, of a Jewish ceremony? And so if you're taking notes, number two is that Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, now to understand the context is we've got to understand a, a Jewish wedding. And so there was kind of three parts. Now, there's probably a lot more detail that we could go into, but I'm not a historian of Jewish weddings. I'm sorry. Um, and so I've done some study here. This is kind of the three buckets that it falls into. And so when there was a man who was going to be married to a woman, oftentimes they were kind of pre-set up by their families. But however they were connected, what would first happen is the man would leave his father's home and he would go to the bride's home. And he would sit down with the father, and he would actually sit down and, and write out a contract. And that contract would include a, a dowry or, or a fee that the, that the groom, the bride's groom, and his father would actually pay to the father. And so this is a contract of entering in into a covenant, and in that contract was a payment. And that payment was 
set by the Father. And, and really what the payment was is I'm going to pay you back for all of the things that you've done, all the resources you've spent to bring your daughter up to this point, and now I'm going to step into responsibility, and I'm going to take you from here. Now, how many dads in the room with daughters say, hey, let's bring this back? Amen. Like, dance lessons are expensive, leotards are expensive, softball lessons are expensive. Like, we would love this. But this is the culture of the day. And now I'm just going to speak a word. Listen, if you're single in this room, and you're considering a guy, and you're considering marrying a woman, like, I am a firm believer. You should go ask for her hand in marriage. And the women said, amen. Like, I think you should do that. I remember when I went to my father-in-law, who's now... Uh, he's a pretty intimidating dude, just really uh, a solid guy. And I was 19 years old, and I went and asked for his daughter's hand in marriage. And I think a little pee came out when I was asking him. Like, I was scared <laughs> to death. I'm like, I don't know. Up from down, I'm in college. I just want to marry your daughter, so don't punch me in the face too hard. Like, just let me And By the grace of God, maybe he had too many drinks that night. I don't know, but he said yes. But we see this. This is the, the sar. And so it goes back to this process. And, and number one was that a covenant is made. And so when this man would come and he would sign this covenant, that, that, that he would pay this fee, this dower. And when he did, the covenant had already started. The marriage is already in place. And so from this point forward, if they want to back out of the marriage, they actually had to go through a divorce process already. It's amazing. Before they ever consummated the marriage, they entered into this agreement. And then once the celebration and party was over, man, we got a couple that's going to be married. Yes, great. Bring out some fun. After that was done, the the bridegroom would leave his bride to be in that house, and the bridegroom would go back to his father's house, and he would actually prepare a place for her. He would actually spend time preparing a a room or, or a house that he could bring his bride back to. And during that time, they would be separated. And then once he was done with his part, he would get his posse and his guys, and they would go and they would march to the bride's house. And when they got close, they would start blowing horns, blowing the shofar, shofar. And they would hear that, and they would run to the bride and say, hey, your groom, your bridegroom is coming back. Go get ready. And he would come back, and he would look upon his bride. There would be a wedding ceremony. And then they would consummate the marriage, and there would be a seven-day party. That's a party I want to show up to. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying in this story, I am the bridegroom. Now, now he, we, in this moment, these disciples and these Pharisees and, and the religious leaders, they didn't understand the implications of what Jesus was telling them. They, they didn't understand the whole story but when Jesus is talking about the bridegroom, he's, he's specifically speaking to his disciples. He's telling them, hey, it's all right that you don't fast right now. He, he is actually giving them um, freedom to say, we're not fasting for a reason. And, and what we see from Jesus is he is the bridegroom. And so we look at this process. Jesus stepped into the same process that the Jewish men would have stepped into when they were getting married. Number one, Jesus came to set up a covenant with his people. Jesus came, and he came, and there was a celebration. And so when Jesus is speaking, this is the phase of the covenant. The bridegroom is with his people, and what he's going to do while he's in their midst is he's going to pay the price. And what was that price? Death. His own blood. To enter into covenant with his people. And so why don't we fast, Jesus' answer, is because the bridegroom is here. 
You can't mourn when the bridegroom is in the house. There is expectation. There is anticipation. There is joy in the house. And so my disciples, they are not going to fast. This is an amazing, glorious moment in history. There is no time for fasting right now. But then he says something very interesting. He says, but there will be a day when you do fast. It'll just be a different kind of fast. And so Jesus, he comes. He sets the covenant, the new covenant is set. He pays for his blood. And then what's it say in the scriptures? That he goes back to prepare if you've got a Bible, turn to John chapter 14. This is so exciting. Like, I'm sorry, I'm getting excited. Like, I may pee myself right now. I don't know. Like, I'm just, this stuff, it just, when you start seeing the picture of God, the story of God that he's telling in the scriptures from beginning to end, it just gets you excited. So this is, this is what Jesus says. So he came, set up the new covenant. That's what we're talking about. They can't fast then, but there's going to be a time when they do. And John 14, this is Jesus speaking, letters in red. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Doesn't that give context to what Jesus is speaking of? He's the bridegroom. (laughs) He came and he paid the price. And then once he died on the cross for the price and raised from the dead and 40 days later ascended back into the right hand of the Father, it says that he went to the Father to prepare a place for you right now. He's preparing a place for his future bride, the church, the people of God. And he says, at that point, when I'm gone, then you'll fast. You'll fast at that point, and it's going to be a different fast. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And then the last piece is the ceremony. Jesus has promised return to take his bride, the church, the people of God. This is what he says in John 14, 3, the next verse. It says, and if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again. Somebody clap. See, we just hear these things. I want you to really get this today. He says, if I go to prepare a place, remember, I'm the bridegroom. I came and I paid a price. I left to prepare. There's going to be a day I'm going to come back to you and take you for myself, that where I am, you will be also. See, this is the beautiful picture of Jesus. It's the beautiful picture of God from beginning of eternity to the end. He is the bridegroom. He came and he paid a price for you with his life. He departed and today he is sitting at the right hand of the Father preparing a place for you. And one day, one glorious day, he will return to claim the people of God as his eternal bride. When's the last time you thought of God as the bridegroom? What implications does that have on your life? When you look at Jesus as the bridegroom who loved you enough, to enter into a new covenant, to leave with a promise that he will return. See, the question Jesus is answering is, why are your disciples not fasting? He comes that up and says, listen, you don't fast right now. This piece of history is way too amazing for fasting and for mourning, for self-affliction. There will be a day when you can do that, but not now. And then Jesus goes on, and he starts to speak to the Pharisees and John's disciples to give them a little bit more context of what he's saying about this new kingdom that he's bringing in. And so he goes on in verse verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, that patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into an old wine skin. If he does, the wine will burst. The skins and the wine is destroyed. But the new wine is for fresh 
wineskins. So now what Jesus is speaking here, he's not just speaking of the fast. He's speaking of a bigger picture. He's talking about the law and grace. He goes on to give two examples, and what he's saying is that there will actually be a new covenant. There will be a new fulfillment of the law. There will be a new kingdom altogether. Jesus is declaring that he is bringing a new covenant to his people, and the old way of connecting to God will no longer suffice. And so he gives this example of a, of a, of a patch that's new material, and he says you can't take that new material and put it on an old garment that's already been shrunk. Because if you, if you do that, that old garment, it's already shrunk down and it's in place, it's set, but that, that patch isn't. So if you put that patch on the old garment, that patch is going to begin to shrink. And when it shrinks, it's actually going to pull away from the old garment. It's actually going to cause more harm than good. And so Jesus right here, he's saying, you can't take my message, you can't take this new covenant and just throw it on top of the old covenant. You can't just throw it on top of the old law. You can't take my story and proclamation of grace and just adhere it on top of the law, because if you do, it'll actually be worse. And I think you and I both know is if we talk about grace a lot with our mouth, but we live under the law, that's actually more torment than living in one or the other. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You can't have the old and the new together. They don't work out. And then he goes in and he starts talking about this new wine, an old wineskin, now, now wineskins um, were used in the fermentation process of making wine, and they were used to carry wine from one place to the other. And so most wineskins were made out of goat skin, um, and they would sew up the ends of the legs and the neck, and they would have pretty much a Ziploc baggie. I mean, back then, it was amazing. And they would put this new wine in there, and, and, and during the fermentation process, chemical engineers like Natalie down here, actually, you're not a chemical, are you a chemical engineer? Petroleum, almost, almost the same thing. Um, if, if she's an engineer, though, so she's really smart. Um, so if, if you had this process going on, it would actually give off gas. And so when you have a, a liquid in a container and it gives off gas and it's contained, that, that container has to expand to be able to hold the, the new wine that's giving off this gas. And so he says you can't put new wine that's giving off this gas during this reaction in an old wineskin because old wineskin is stiff, it's not pliable, And it won't hold it. And what's actually interesting, he says, what they would have known is if you would have put new wine in an old wineskin, the remnant of the old wine on the skin would actually accelerate the reaction. It would actually give off actually more and faster gas. And what Jesus says, that, that that would actually explode and break, and you would not only waste the wineskin, but the wine itself. Now, there are many interpretations of this verse, and if you go into the charismatic circles, super charismatic, you're going to get one answer, and if you go over here to the super conservative, you're going to get another answer, uh, but I just want to stay right in the main today, like what do we know for a fact? Not all the outskirts, but what's the primary thing? Here's the primary thing. I believe that the new wine that Jesus is speaking of is the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus came to proclaim and demonstrate. He proclaimed it by preaching and teaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. But he also proclaimed the kingdom and demonstrated the kingdom through his authority over sickness, through healing, through miracles, through wonders, and even, as we read last week, by forgiving sin. This is the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. Wherever that is happening, the kingdom of God has come to us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, the kingdom of God lives in you. Wherever you go, the kingdom goes. 
And what we see is, is that he says, this new wine, it's what you want. But he says, you can't have an old wineskin. So we ask the question, how do we get it? How do we be able to receive what Jesus is talking about? 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Jesus not only brought the new wine, he also provided the new wineskin. You see, we become new wineskins by saying, Jesus, I confess you. I have a need of a Savior, and you are it, and I confess my sin, and I receive from you. The new wine is the new kingdom. What we see is these religious men, they were fasting in preparation for a Messiah to come. But when Jesus steps in, he tells them that there will be a different type of fasting in the near future when he is gone. This fasting will be full of new wine. It will be done in light of the grace that Jesus has extended through his life, death, and resurrection. Fasting in this new phase will be done with passion because God has fulfilled his promise to send the Messiah to forgive the sins of his people. Do you see the difference, church? They were fasting in light of the Messiah coming. That's the old way, under the law. Now, he says, when the day comes that I leave, you're going to fast a new way, and your fasting now is going to be propelled because the Messiah has come. He's set up the covenant. He's given you grace. He's forgiven your sin as far as the east is from the west. And he's promised to return. And through that, he's given us his Holy Spirit to empower us, to teach us, to draw us. See, this is the new one. The kingdom of God has come. No longer are we under the law. We are now under the grace of God. What once was law and obedience now becomes a grace, even fasting. So my question as we finish today is, you know, what does it mean to you that Jesus is the great physician? Do, do, do you, what's that mean to you? Do you see him that way, that he can heal physically, but he's also the only one that can heal you spiritually? What does it mean to you that Jesus is the bridegroom, that he loves you? That he came, paid a price for you, he left, he's preparing a place for you. And one day, one glorious day, he's going to come back and he's going to come and he's going to take up his bride, the people of God. And, and then finally, what side are, 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 would you say you are? Are you more like the old wineskin or are you like the new wineskin? See, the old wineskin never recognizes its need for a savior, never recognizes the power of grace. It's satisfied with the laws and self righteousness. But, but the new wine that Jesus offers is grace. You come as you are, you receive what I've done, and you'll step into the kingdom of God, and I'll give you my spirit, and I'll empower you. And I want you this week, as you go through, if you looked at this other reading that I put some extra verses on here, you, you do some self-study, and you answer those questions with the Lord, and then you listen and ask, God, what are you speaking? What are you speaking? Lord, thank you so much that you've given us an opportunity to gather in your house today to be under the name and the blood of Jesus. We proclaim you. We lift you up, Jesus. You are worthy. So, Lord, just convict us, encourage us, lead us, pour out your grace and our identity over us as sons and daughters of the King. Draw us to your throne today in Jesus' name.